Welcome to the next in our series of business and human rights podcasts. I'm Rachel Barrett. I'm a partner in the sustainability team at Linklaters in London. And I'm joined here today by James Marlowe, who's an associate in the sustainability team, and by Xavier Tatin, a partner in our Brussels dispute resolution team, and Guillaume Croissant, who's a management, managing associate in our Belgian dispute resolution team, and, and both have extensive experience on business and human rights matters. And we're here today to talk about remedy, uh, which is a topic that often poses a bit of a challenge to people when faced with business and human rights issues that have arisen. And so we're going to see if we can explore that in a little bit more detail and also understand what you can do a to prevent issues occurring, uh, but also to learn lessons if, if things have gone wrong. Um, how do you make sure they don't happen again? So, James, it would really be helpful if you could kick us off. So when should companies be engaging on remedy? Thanks, Rachel. So whenever a company identifies a potential or an actual adverse human rights impact, it is really important to consider how the persons affected will access a remedy and whether that's something that you should be involved in. Now, there are no strict legal tests for this at the moment. And the main point of reference in this space is the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, or the UNGPs. So they set out that if you have caused or contributed to an impact, you should provide for or cooperate in the provision of re remediation. If, however, you are only linked to an impact by virtue of a business relationship with another entity, the responsibility isn't on you to provide the remedy yourself, but you should use your leverage to get those who have caused or contributed to the impact to provide or cooperate in the provision of the remedy. And in practice, that may mean getting involved yourself. Of course, even if you do determine that it's actually someone else who really should be fixing the problem, you might decide to get involved anyway, particularly if that helps with your social license to operate. When you talk about remedy, James, what, what does that actually look like in practice? So when we talk about remedy, what often springs to mind is, is financial compensation. Uh, and that may be appropriate in some circumstances, but the key message to take away here and the reality is that remedy can actually take many different forms. So this includes, for example, making an apology, very simple form of remedy, but often quite powerful and important, assisting with rehabilitation of those adversely impacted, and offering forms of non-financial compensation, as well as offering guarantees of non-repetition. So this won't happen again in the future. The second key message on this topic is that providing remedy is something that you might be able to do with others. You're not alone. Now that may seem obvious, particularly in cases of contribution or, or linkage, but it's also applicable in the cause fact pattern and collaboration could be with other industry players. It could be with NGOs and charities, whether that's locally or internationally or with local government institutions. And I think it's also important to note that there may also already be an existing process through which remedy can be obtained. And I'm talking about state-based judicial mechanisms, for example, or a court process. And that might be underway or in the, in, in the process is of, of providing remedy to those impacted. Now, in that case, what you should be doing is looking to cooperate with the existing mechanism and not undermining it by doing your own thing. However, the caveat to that is just because there is such a, a remedy available or a process available, it should be recognised that in some cases these can be quite difficult for the infected peoples to access. 
uh, and navigate and they don't always result in the provision of remedy and that's where you may also then need to need to step in but having said all about that i know rachel you've had a lot of experience yourself in designing remedy mechanisms so what would your top tips be for those listening yeah we've done quite a few for people now and i think i think the most important point to remember it might sound obvious but every situation is very different and as you said there are lots of options when it comes to remedy so really having an open mind i think as to to what you're going to do and what the right the right way forward is is very important um we always tell people that stakeholder engagement is really key. Um, that helps you understand uh, what you might need to do to put things right. And obviously constructive communication builds trust as well. And you're going to have to work quite closely with the people who are affected. That means good listening skills are key, as is then explaining to people what you've done um, with the information or the input that they've given you. So, so that has to be very much a, a dialogue in design. You need to be mindful of cultural sensitivities. Um, not everything will work in every jurisdiction or every region. Um, and I think you also have to be very mindful of the fact that, that certain vulnerable or marginalized groups might be impacted differently. And you might need to, to take different approaches depending on who you're dealing with to make sure they're included in the process and that you're reaching all relevant people. Um, accessibility of any remedy scheme is really key. And that's a, another place for that, that comes into to, comes into play. I think you, you should always be transparent um, where you can. Um, it's very important and, and a running theme through through this whole area actually, and being clear uh, and being predictable about the remedy that that you're providing is also very important. So, for example, we've designed schemes for people that are based on clear sets of rules or at the very least principles or values, um, so they produce fair and predictable outcomes for people. And obviously you should learn from your, your mistakes or learnings um, as you roll out a, a remedy program or scheme, whatever it is that you're doing, um, very often you will find certain things won't work in the way you'd attend, intended, which is fine. You just have to adapt to that. And you might get new information either from stakeholders uh, or from other sources. And again, you'll have to be nimble and adapt. And if you have a set of clear values or principles or rules that sit behind the scheme, that makes that much easier because you've got a framework within which to operate. And I think part of learning from your mistakes or, or learning from new information also really feeds into to another aspect of remedy, which is making sure things don't happen again. And that's where I think, Zevi and Guillaume, you've got quite a bit of experience helping people navigate through lessons learned exercises, haven't you? Indeed, thank you, uh, Rachel. So, uh, Xavier, if, if we now indeed turn to what companies should do to avoid uh, adverse human rights impacts, what would you recommend this? Certainly, one of the objectives of any company should be to avoid the need to remedy adverse human rights impact, or if that happened in the past, to avoid the risk of it happening again. And in that sense, the design and the implementation of a strong compliance program within the company is certainly the best tool that is available to manage that kind of risk. This is also something that is driven by new legislation, such as the sustainable finance program at the EU level or specific duties of vigilance in domestic laws. So as a company, you are more and more required to assume the responsibility to protect fundamental human rights. And depending on the sector, this might be required by law, by consumers, by investors, or by other stakeholders. In any event, 
this is key to maintain your social license to operate. Very clear indeed. Uh, but then could you perhaps tell us more uh, about compliance programs uh, themselves, actually? What would be your, your main pieces of advice there? I would like to highlight three main tips. First, your public commitments on compliance should be well calibrated in view of the resources that you will allocate to them. You should certainly avoid over-promising in public commitments. And this is because recent case law considers that a company may be held responsible by third parties if it does not deliver on the commitments made in published materials. So a first risk management tip is to avoid issuing commitments on which you will not be able to deliver in practice. As a seventh tip, I would suggest that you should support the development of a value-based compliance culture within your company. At the end of the day, the most effective way to prevent risk is to make sure that your people will take the right decision, even if they are in difficult situations. And to reach that goal, the tone must be set from the top management. The values of the company must be expressed in clear policies that resonate within the employees. And periodic trainings must be organized so that people are kept aware of the compliance policies and the need to apply them. Finally, Monitoring the level of compliance within the company is probably one of the most difficult aspects. You could think of including a point on human rights compliance within the framework of any appraisal discussions with your business line managers. You could also consider engaging with NGOs or other external stakeholders to use them as sounding boards and also to receive information on how your company performs compared to others on these important objectives. Now, another aspect is that uh, companies also aim at avoiding adverse human rights impacts in their supply chains or in their portfolio companies. Guillaume, could you tell us about the additional hurdles that companies are confronted with in these situations? Sure. Um, so traditionally, uh, there was a certain uh, reluctance, uh, I would say, for, for certain companies to be too involved, actually, in the oversight of their supply chain and, and subsidiaries. And this was, among others, a case uh, because in a number of jurisdictions, the test used by the case law to determine whether parent companies have actually a duty of care towards those affected by the breaches of their subsidiaries or suppliers would depend on the degree of supervision and control exercised by these parent companies. Um, this is clear, from in, for instance, from uh, the US, UK Supreme Court's decision in Vedenta uh, or, or from the ERICA case before the, the French Supreme Court. However, uh, based on the specific legislation uh, you mentioned, Xavier, such as the French duty of vigilance, there are more and more obligations on parent companies to ensure compliance throughout their group. Um, for now, those are mostly reporting obligations at this stage, but uh, more may be coming at EU level, as we will discuss in another podcast. Obviously, pressure also comes, as you mentioned, uh, from stakeholders, including consumers, NGOs, uh, and so on. 
So how, how to actually uh, ensure that? So the more obvious way uh, is to adapt and tailor made the compliance policies you discussed, Xavier. So to determine which policies of the group are applicable to subsidiaries, uh, taking into consideration local specificities. Um, one difficulty companies may face, obviously, is to be uh, correctly informed of what is happening throughout the group. And there, the mechanisms you, you mentioned as well, such as whistleblowing, uh, speaking with third parties and the like, uh, is very much key. Another good tool to ensure compliance um, throughout the, the whole group is to give adequate training uh, to the directors appointed by the parent company to portfolio companies so that they are attentive to compliance issues uh, at the level of these portfolio companies. What we also see more and more uh, are holding companies requesting portfolio companies to answer specific questionnaires on their compliance uh, policies and risks. And then finally, with respect really to suppliers, um, it is frequent for companies to request them to abide by contractual obligations, uh, such as a, a code of conduct for suppliers, uh, and where adequate uh, and necessary, uh, for instance, because of the sensitivity of the sector or the region, uh, to hire specialized third-party providers to, to conduct inside inspections uh, and see what is happening in practice. Which I think are round of uh, our podcast here. Uh, any final thoughts, anyone? Yeah, I think for me, remedy is a really interesting topic. I think um, it does worry a lot of people um, that, that we engage with, but actually it's a tremendously flexible concept. Um, it can uh, it can be a really useful risk management tool in addition to giving you the ability to do the right thing um, and put things right. Um, I think it allows you to do what works for you and for your affected stakeholders. Um, and it's definitely something uh, to keep an open mind about. Um, and if people need support, then they're always very, very welcome to get in touch with the team here. Um, I don't know if you guys have any, any final thoughts on your piece. At the conclusion, the most important point is to set the right culture within the company to make sure that your people will take the right decision, that they will promote the good values uh, of the firm, and they will make sure that there is no adverse human rights impact, or if unfortunately something wrong happens, that they will make sure that it does not happen again. And that's the conclusion for our podcast. Thank you for listening.